0: This is Rainey Knudsen with Glass Tire. My guest today is Peter Plagens, the abstract painter who is perhaps best known not as an artist, but as the longtime art critic for Newsweek magazine. Plagens wrote for Newsweek from 1989 to 2003, and since then has continued to write for Art Forum, among other publications. At Tyre, many of our best writers have always been artists themselves, and so it made sense to talk to this consummate artist-slash-critic about these two sometimes-competing activities he has engaged in for the last four decades in the art world. In this interview, Plagans talks about his early years as a teacher at the University of Texas at Austin in the 1960s, and why, in 2019, anybody should still be making abstract paintings. We spoke on the occasion of an exhibition of his new work at Texas Gallery in Houston, a show which opened in April 2019. All right, so I, I have to start by picking an argument with you. Go ahead. Glass Tire, is named in homage to Robert Rauschenberg. I don't know if you know this. No, I do not. The the title of Glass Tire is an homage to his Glass Tires, which I saw in the retrospective that I saw you criticize in print.
1: Was that the long time ago to to Guggenheim, Guggenheim, Uptown, Downtown? Yeah,
0: 1998. Anyway, so in that same retrospective, I saw his Glass Tires at the Menil here in town, because they did it here in Houston too. And I loved the glass tires, so I named them in honor of Rauschenberg. And so you had this quotation and you said, I once said in print that there's a kind of Rauschenberg sauce. Oh, yeah, I know. Quote, unquote, that you can pour over any materials or any configuration thereof and have the result come out recognizably, quote, a Rauschenberg, unquote. It's like salsa. Pour it over anything, even lemon sorbet or Wheaties. And what you've got tastes like Tex-Mex. And I think you were saying it that you, if you were, had to be a Rauschenberg, pro Rauschenberg or pro Johns, that you would be pro Johns. I would
1: be pro Johns,
0: Hmm.
1: but I'm, on the other hand, I'm pro Stones as opposed to the Beatles, whatever that means, I mean, and I, you know, and I was making an extreme point that there's a kind of, and it doesn't include all the works, but the kind of rubbing and the frottage and the painting with Kennedy and the astronaut and going to the moon, you know, that mix and match sort of sort of thing. And there's also, with a lot of the work like the combines, one of the things that hit me you know, a long time ago is the combine, I forget it is, but it's the one with the stuffed bird on here and the eagle and the pillow down here. The guy is an art director par excellence. You know what I mean? They're balanced, they're true. And it was sort of, if you take this collage stuff and you make it elegant and you put it around, you got a quilt, you got a thing, you got a Rauschenberg. And also partly it was directed at younger artists. It's better to imitate Rauschenberg than to imitate Jasper Johns.
0: Ah, oh, better, because yeah. that my- Myra Easier, Qu- easier, like- easier.
1: Easier. well I this mean, is
0: the thing that the, he shouldn't be condemned by influence
1: no he shouldn't you can't blame uh what did somebody say richard schiff one time do you know richard i still remember him saying he said in my lectures on Cezanne, i never mentioned cubism in my lectures on cubism i never fail to mention Cezanne. time's arrow goes in one direction yeah, you can't blame the Tyros on Rauschenberg, you know. On the other hand, there is something in that method. When I used to teach and I'd have a beginning drawing class or something where I wanted to put up, we would do newspaper photographs and later fluid and take the pencil and do that and everybody got an instant, ooh, you know, and made them all happy. That's all. I'm.
0: Well, speaking of teaching, I was surprised. I didn't realize that you had taught at UT in the 60s here in Texas.
1: First teaching job.
0: How was that? How was Austin in those days?
1: Austin was real interesting. Um, You want the Cliff Notes version of how I got the job? Sure. I'm out in L.A., okay? I'm out of graduate school. I have a young kid, first wife. Uh, I got out of graduate school, Syracuse. I didn't get a teaching job. Because the ones I got, she didn't want to go to because she was a Californian and they were all in, you know, places like, you know, some little town in upstate New York, you know, Cortland State, you know. So we came back to L.A. and I had a job as assistant art director in essentially a beach towel factory in East L.A., you know. And so that's where I'm working. And then I got a job in a museum. I I've, I've left out something. I was I was the assistant curator at the Long Beach Museum of Art. But assistant curator staff of 5. Director, curator, assistant curator, administrative assistant, part-time bookstore. So I'm in the, you know, I make I design the signs to hang out front of the and it's in a house, the Long Beach Museum of Art. You know, it's on in an old mansion by the small community museum Mm -hmm. and I wanted a teaching job and all of a sudden I got a call from the lady at Southern Cal where I had been an undergraduate because the chairman of the art department at Texas who had been at USC said we had some guy canned in the middle of the semester, got fired. It wasn't a me too deal. There was a big-time sculptor there named Charlie Umlauf. Oh,
0: yes, of yeah. course.
1: He does all the Soviet Jesuses all over yes. Texas, okay?
0: Farrah Fawcett was his protege. Oh, yeah, I uh,
1: I subbed for a guy's class. I had Farrah Fawcett for a student for three weeks while this guy was sick. And she was in a beginning design class, and she was good. Yeah. Colored paper, very neat, you know? Uh, she was referred to as the plastic fantastic by the students, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. no diss on her. I mean, you know, she was, so, but this guy probably made fun of Charlie and Charlie was, you know, and so there was this slot open and I got called up, can somebody be there in three weeks before the next semester starts? So I consulted and I, yeah, and I ended up in Austin. I was a painter and I got along fine with Charlie. Charlie, you know, considered, you know, uh I, you know painters didn't exist really he 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 didn't care so i got along fine with him that's how i ended up in austin
0: the and uh, was that how you ended up seeing the sydney nolan show in san antonio that yes that was transformative for you? oh
1: god yes where si- so
0: where was this in, in, and you said it in print in san antonio of all places uh it, it was
1: at a museum does it still exist called the witty
0: Yes, the witty does still exist.
1: Because I always hear about the McNay and everything. Yes, good. no, the
0: witty's still there and in fact they have just done some new stuff. So they
1: Okay. I had a show at the Witty.
0: Really? Yeah. When th- was that?
1: Well, here's what happened. Um, you know, you know, this is Texasy stuff. So so I'm at, I'm there, right? And I liked it. And I go down to the slide library a lot okay and i show a lot of slides and i used to do these idiot things in my class like i had a lecture on color that had no words to it it was just a sequence of slides and lap dissolves with two two things and we would go from black and white to color to blue yellow red all the way through and then back out again with works of art medieval to you know and you were supposed to figure out what the common denominator and sequence was no words, but it was accompanied by Inagata Davida. How's that?
0: I don't know that I would use the word idiot to describe.
1: That. Well, it got you know they
0: maybe with savant idiot savant.
1: Yeah, but it was it it, it was they liked it. So the other thing about Texas was um, so I'd show these slides. There was this guy down an art historian in the slide library I used to talk to you know his name was Donald Wiseman okay I didn't know this and I I was fooling around and they had these you could apply for a leave as a junior faculty I'm an instructor you know how the ranks go instructor assistant professor that's not tenured associate full that's tenured I'm I'm the lowest I'm an instructor and
0: this was before the days of adjunct
1: yeah, yeah, this is a full time. Yeah, they didn't have adjunct, that whole uh, debacle, corruption, exploitation, slavery, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, anyway, uh, Wiseman is down there, and we talked, and I said, you know, I really liked Flemish painting. I had a college class, Northern Renaissance at USC, professor I loved, you know, your silver haired art historian. And I always wanted to go, and I'd never been to Europe, I wanted to go see it. And he said, why don't you apply for one of these grants? You have to have a a senior faculty member sign off on it. So I did. Little did I know that Donald Wiseman was LBJ's personal art historian. He did them all the George Ennis's and all that sort of shit and was really in the the ranch. So in those days, LBJ, board of trustees, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I got... As an instructor, I got this year off on their tab to go live in Brussels, which I did. I came back, put in the year that you're supposed to put in, you know, after you get a grant, and then wanted to go back to California somehow, mm-hmm. and I did. How was it? It, it 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 was fine. I was there during the Larry Caroline, uh, uh, the guy who became president of BU, Silber, John Silber debacle. I marched What was in, that debacle? Oh, there was a guy named Larry Caroline who taught English, and uh, he called for a revolution, and then they said they were gonna fire him, because it was, this was 60s. 60s. not 68 or 69. Uh-huh. So they're gonna fire him. There are big student demonstrations. Uh, there, was, Silber was an English professor and he said well I'll, let me go talk to I'll be the intermediary you know and he basically sold everybody out and he became a real famous right-winger as a president of Boston University you know raised finally raised a Jolly Roger and there was a whole thing and there were marches and shit and I remember marching in in something and being spat on by one of my students a sorority girl and you know and, and 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 they were all staying there with some kind of white blouses and blue skirts like young americans for freedom or some sort of you know right-wingy yes. you know group
0: it's never good when people are wearing the same clothes <laughs>
1: but i liked it. it was my they let me do you know you could teach your own classes uh people were nice i had a show in houston uh, uh, I met Dave Hickey, uh, and Austin was a sort of great place. Barton Springs, et cetera, et cetera, um, and it was and it was good. And it was at the beginning of all that stuff. There were two separate cultures. Am I going on too long? Mm -mm. There were two separate cultures. There were the long-haired rock and rollers who went to the Vulcan Gas Company or the Armadillo World Headquarters and that sort of shit, you know, and Gilbert Shelton and the Rag and, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. And then there were the guys with crew cuts who worked at Carrier Air Conditioning and drove pickup trucks and listened to Willie Nelson. Mm -hmm. Willie Nelson, in the first iteration of Willie Nelson.
0: Willie Nelson, Nashville songwriter.
1: Nashville songwriter with a normal haircut. So there was this, and I was asking somebody last night if they remembered it, and they did. There was this club called the Broken Spoke in Austin. Mm. And
0: it was still there when I was there in the mid nineties.
1: Well, and it was a place where the two cultures converged. And there was this guy named George somebody I would give money if somebody could remember his last name he was like the house musician blind and deaf in one ear and he did covers you know of songs he played like this with his good ear down to the piano Mm -hmm. and he did a hey jude that was usually the closing number that went on and on and on and it was just revelatory
0: kind of magic
1: kind of magic anyway i'm going on too much but yeah i liked austin
0: Well, no, Texas has a a funny ethos uh, and, I don't know, the idea of what it is 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 a funny thing. Um, You taught a lot of places after that, but then you made this big switch when you were hired by Newsweek in 89, is that right? 89. So can you talk a little bit about teaching versus journalism? Which did you you like better? How were they different?
1: I probably at the stage ended up liking, you know, liking journalism because Uh, 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 you know, an edit. It was it, it, the main difference is this you had a story meeting at Newsweek, and I didn't write every week. I wrote maybe 20, 20, 23 pieces a year, you know, and two of them would be, and you wrote around a little bit, you know, you did a short squib. It wasn't all you know, Peter Sheldall in The New Yorker mm-hmm. or, or Roberta Smith, you know, where you're the the voice in the review. But you had a story meeting and you would go and I I liked it for two reasons. I liked it one, because I was the cartoonist and I was really good. The drawings were really good. The content sucked. It was real Jejeun sophomoric at best, but I could draw. I was the cartoonist for the Daily Trojan when I was a kid. I loved the atmosphere of the student newspaper because there was, it was a mix of bohemians and frat boys and stuff and they didn't go to keggers and drink beer. They kept bottles in their desk drawer and the offices of the DT were, you know. So Newsweek was suddenly, it was that brought back again. Mm-hmm. And I liked that culture. And if you went to a meeting, there was going to be a magazine put out next week. You go to a faculty meeting and they table everything and people just listen to themselves talk because they're professors. You know what I mean? And you talk about this, you know, curriculum and you know, should design to be a three semester class and should be that and should we should they be using balsa wood in two dimensional design and you you know, that sort of stuff. Uh and and you know and you're your own and you're your own voice, and it's nicer to deal with readers than it is to deal with students. You don't feel responsible for somebody's fate, you know. Um, and there is what you're good at. I was good at being a journalistic art critic, you know. I was very good at. My wife, who retired in 2014 from Hofstra and gave the distinguished faculty lecture and got a Guggenheim at advanced age two years ago, she is really a good teacher and she cares and she's got a good classical education. You know, she went to Mount Holyoke and was a high school Latin something or other. And she can really teach and she can relate and all that sort of stuff. And I'm a little grumpier and get pissed off if they're not, you know, I don't, I, 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 you know, I don't have the milk of human kindness in my heart to bring somebody along that much. I can do it and I do like to earn the money that I'm paid and I'm conscientious, but it isn't my talent.
0: And you don't miss teaching?
1: No, I don't. I will go do some things, I mean the last thing I did was, you know, a couple of months ago I went to Pratt to do some crits, Mm -hmm. you know, they ask you over and you sit with a bunch of people and graduate students come in and, you know, you do crits. It's compromised because you don't want to be the visiting asshole, you know, you come in there for a day and you don't want to, so I try to put my criticisms into pointed questions such as you did with me with Rauschenberg.
0: Well, let's talk about your paintings a bit, if we may.
1: You certainly may.
0: Let let me pivot gracefully. For anyone listening to this who's not familiar with your paintings, you for a while now have been working in this thing where you have what you call a badge, which is a hard edged shape or, you know, group of shapes that are next to each other in the center of a canvas. Yeah, Nancy Hoffman
1: coined the term bad. And, and I just go along with it.
0: Okay, okay. Um, and, and it's on usually some kind of a field of color behind it, which is a mm-hmm. flat field of color, and then behind that, you have this sort of sublayer towards the edges um, that where it gets a lot looser. Right. And um, there was a wonderful essay by a wonderful writer who I admire so much, David Pagel, where he talked about what was really interesting. First of all, he was so pissed off because the catalog for the show he was writing about, apparently the, the designer had cropped the images of your painting, so you didn't see those loose edges. Yeah. Maybe he thought or she thought it wasn't part of the painting or well, something? Well, I, th- I had a,
1: I think it was this retrospective I had in 2003, yeah. Three, yeah. and it started at the Art Museum, now it was called Gallery, but it's now the Fisher Museum at USC, and then it went to a couple of other places. And, yeah, they put, they, they did things like run an illustration across a gutter and, you know, other such things. Paintings were a little different. They weren't that centered, emblematic, mm-hmm. you know. They didn't look like the LAPD badge. Right. Speaking of badges.
0: But David made the point that the edge was was very interesting in these paintings. And I think that that still is true even with these newer paintings. I hope so. And I... Uh, I actually was thinking about this in the context of this essay that you wrote about Ralph Meeker, the sort of b list <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> actor. You read that? It's a great, great essay. Oh, I really love it. And you, you, it's sort of this ode to the runners-up and how the anti-hero yeah. aspect. <laughs> and you said in another in another piece, you talked about the badge or the center shape being bossy. You called it bossy. And what I thought, what I was thinking about this was I was like, I wonder if, If the edge really is the interesting part of the painting and the central part is the bossy part or the A-list part, is the edge for you the B-list place where the interesting anti-hero lives? Or am I stretching, am I really pulling too hard on that?
1: No, you're not doing the heavy lifting. It's, it's, It's there, but the way that they're done is real simple. I mean, I'm not a technician and I hate things that are indirect like printmaking and ceramics, you know. You put it on the stone and then you pull it off and it's different, you know. Ceramics, you put some purple shit on it and it comes out green when it comes out of the... and you have to know all this stuff. Plus you have to make it so it won't explode in the kill, like Mm -hmm. mine did, Mm -hmm. because I couldn't make thin walls. It was horrible. Uh, I start with this stuff, pencil, then colored pencil, then charcoal, you know, and it's all over except I get smart and I know there's gonna be something in the middle so I don't cover it all, but it's pretty far into the thing. Then some drippy paint, you know, watercolory and I usually have three colors that I do and I'll paint on two at a time so they're alike up to a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Then I get a little bit wider brush and I make, you know, wider things that gradually come in and, and they kind of cover except they're, you know, obviously interstices that are there, okay? Then finally comes, okay, now I'm going to go opaque, and I'm gonna cover it in. Mm-hmm. But toward the outside, I leave little things if they appeal, you know, little bits of leftover. It's kind of, you know, a little supposedly precious and elegant, but...
0: Well, oh. David Pagel said it was inelegant. He oh. said your, your painting is simultaneously sophisticated and inelegant.
1: Oh, well, I worry about being too kind of, you know, what I call piss elegant, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. where the, the, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, and it's covered, and then I paint that, and I'll change the color a couple times. You can see around the edges. I go up to the edge, but not, you know, exactly, and it gets to whatever. And I'm working on two at a time, and they usually end up kind of, one is warm and one is cool. Mm-hmm. Like, one is kind of that tan color, and the other one will be a gray-blue, that background color, mm-hmm. you know? And then the last thing that goes on, now, in the 70s, when I used to have a kind of a, what I called an Edom cheese, you know when you get the yeah, red yeah. disc and, and you and, cut the yeah, slice Yeah, and of so it's out. a circle with a straight line. They were oil paint on the outside, and it was acrylic on the inside, and I would mask that thing out to begin with. And so it was like about a 64th of an inch, and then I would carefully hand paint the edge to, you know, not go over. But now that thing goes on top. It is what it looks like.
0: Am I correct that the flat color, the opaque color on top is unmixed acrylic?
1: Yeah, it's un—it's—it's it's what I call bottle color. It's yeah. nameable. You can go out and buy it again and replace it. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it. I mean, I don't have a whole spiel, but there's subjectivity, objectivity, the tension between things garishness versus, you know what I mean, tamping it down a little. But the colors, yes, in the middle are a, especially in the multicolored ones, they're what I call bottle colors. So they're flash paint, they're acrylic gouache, they're something that comes out of a tube or a jar.
0: I, it, yes, and I, it's sometimes looking at these um, and I may be reading too much into your intention, but it almost feels like your heart is really in the edges, in that romantic, soft edge, subjective edge. Yeah, and my heart
1: isn't, but my brain is probably in the center. My heart is in there, and this is going to, you know, make anybody listening to this throw up. <laughs> but, I, you know, I was a real good drawer. My father was a low-level commercial artist, among other things that he tried, and he was a good cartoonist. And I, when I studied at USC, there was a professor named Edgar Ewing, and he did that. And the guy that was sort of legendary because they even named the paper after him. You went down to the little, it was called En Charette, the Charette, you know, and you bought your art supplies, you know, it was a little closet, it was convenient in the, in the art building, and they had what they called de paper, named after this guy, Francis Deerderly. And it was better than newsprint, but not real good, right? And then you got Conti crayon. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in the figure drawing class, and I could get that Conti crayon to look like a saber, you know, it came like that. So if you go down the outline of a thigh of the model, and then you just turn it a little bit, you know, that thick and thin stuff. I could do that, you know, really well, please the professor because it was like, you know. But
0: you don't trust it or you don't believe in it?
1: I don't believe in it, but when I'm working on the edge and doing those lines, I try to do them fast you know, and I used to have a thing where I would do it first thing in the morning before coffee or late at night when I didn't know what the fuck I was doing anymore and wanted to go to bed to try to keep it off balance. But I, I do it now, but that's the part I like. So maybe that kind of stuff shows up in there, you know, because it is the hand thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of more fun and risky. Um, but yeah, you could say my heart is probably there and then in between in that ground color and then it gets conceptual. Uh, it's conceptual except when you're done with it, there's an optical bounce that doesn't have any, you know, subject matter content to it, you know.
0: Maybe it's just pleasure.
1: Maybe it's just pleasure. I mean, I want to, I don't want to,
0: uh, uh,
1: uh <laughs> A bad old movie a long time ago. I think it was was it the long, long trailer? I don't know, but it was Lu- Lucille Ball and Bob Hope, and he wants to be an artist, and she says, you know, ha, you an artist? And he says, what do you want me to do, cut off my ear? You know, and there is that, what do you want me to do, cut off my ear? I mean, this is this is fun of a certain sort, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As in, say, doing your income tax is not fun.
0: Of any sort. Of any sort you know um, you've talked about uh, in your artist statement which is which is great you talk about um, you know yeah 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 the death of painting yeah 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 abstract painting yeah 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 the sentimentality of collage and yet you do those things I do them and um, do you think and I like how you just sort of shrug your shoulders in the thing like well this is what I do and you 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 maybe blame it on your your Teutonic plotting nature, um, or on just sort of a, a, or maybe you can't help yourself, or maybe, why do you do these things in, uh, that you do? Well, the, w- one thing, I
1: mean, the older you get, unless you've really got a mission and a program, you know, unless you're Don Judd or Ad Reinhardt or Mondrian or Hilma Alt Clint or something, you've got some sort of mission that's supposed to do something you realize that, you know, you're just one of the girls at the bar and you're not going to solve all these things, okay? So you, you know, you know, and even within art, my painting, one of my, you know, phrases I loathe all over is people who say my art addresses the issue of, okay? <laughs> and even within formalist issues you know i don't really address the issue of the best i can hope is to be by example to maybe you know nudge somebody in one direction etc etc cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's one and i do accept the fact that in the 21st century and as it goes on you know painting is kind of a niche market paul brock You know him, the minimalist artist who was at Mm CalArts, one of the founders, he said painting is like cloisonne, you know, major art form of the 18th century, but nobody does it anymore and it doesn't really mean anything. There is a a bit of a niche market kind of thing in contemporary art to painting, but you have this situation where the art market, at least the Western art market, if you take it all the way from you know, lesser galleries through really first-class galleries like this one to museums and auction houses. It's the trade in pictures mm-hmm. that, you know, that uh, uh, does the thing. And I know about it, but there's, you know, like there's nothing I can do about it. I wrote the most pretentious thing I ever wrote when I was trying to, uh, uh, what did Phil Leader call one? He was the original editor of Art, Art Forum is a really nasty guy but real smart. This reads like a college boy's first venture into deep thinking, capital D, capital T. He said that after something. But I wrote this essay that got published in the College Art, you know the Art Journal, I think the College Art, and it was called um, um, I forget, but it was about how painting was real profound because it was Should I stop? Mm -mm,
0: Go on. It was
1: was because it was between nothingness and something. Whereas sculpture was kind of vulgar because it was really there. But painting had this really weird thing like it was right next to nothingness, but there was just this little bit of materiality that allowed it, you know, to exist. And I quoted from Merleau-Ponty and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was pretentious as all hell, but it was true. You know, it wasn't a great original idea, you know, uh, uh, but it was true. And I was also struck one time I went to a, I don't know whether you read, because I always quote it. It's not me, it's Motherwell. He gave a lecture at the Pasadena Art Museum long before the new one, you Mm -hmm, know. mm -hmm. And And I remember I was taken by two things. One, he showed slides of his own work. And in the slides, the paintings were just propped up on two plywood Eames chairs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's where they were. Those, you know, the curved plywood Mm -hmm. and the little metal legs. And I really liked that. You know, they gave it a context and so forth. I mean, I'm real young. I can't articulate that, but there was some feeling about it. And he started out by saying something like painting was defacing a piece of cloth that was nailed to boards by means of hairs tied to sticks that were dipped in colored grease, you know? And it was one of those things like, you know, if you describe sex in biomechanical terms, right? Or anything else, he just, he took all of the fun mystery. of it. this is what it is. This guy with, you know, dips his stick with head and, and there's a nice piece of clean can and he defaces it, mm-hmm. you know? I say he's old school. Um, And that always stuck with me. And it still sticks with me, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's, uh, um, uh, what, you know, remember who you are and where you came from. It's not all that, it's not all that magical. And yet it is. Well, something takes, you know, the whole is more than the sum of its parts.
0: Do you enjoy making painting more than looking at painting?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I do. And I'm probably, uh, corrupted or traumatized by the fact that early on I got into, um, and I will interject this here, Uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of the game. Maybe you're done. Um, I always like the line Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker had a line. She says, my advice to all you young people out there who are thinking of getting married, don't, okay? And I, my advice to all you young artists, although the thing has changed now with, you know, digital and blogs and everybody and all like that, but, you know, I shot myself in the foot. My advice to all you young artists out there who are thinking of also looking at art and writing criticism about it, don't. Don't do that.
0: Which segues beautifully to what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> don't, don't do it. <laughs> our, over the years, Glass Tire is now 18 years old, and many of our very, very best writers are and have always been from the beginning artists. Yeah. And I, when I'm asked about this, I always say, I think it's because writing is thinking and I, because nobody thinks about art in the way that artists think about art. And when they look at art, because artists look at the world differently, I think, than I do anyway, and they when they look at art, they look at it differently. And Were they also you an look, art historian in college? No, no, literature. Okay. You wrote a terrific essay in 2009 called The Absolute Truth About Contemporary Art, and in this essay, you sort of compare an artist coming up in 64 versus 79 versus quote unquote today, which at that point was the late aughts, or the aughts. Yeah, it was a lecture. Was it a lecture? Yeah, I
1: wrote it out.
0: Okay. Um, Do you, would you, I don't know if you can respond to this, but how would you update it for today in 2019? Because I think it's, I noticed changes from the late aughts when you, I guess, delivered the lecture.
1: Of those people, what I said, uh, John Curran and Jeff Koons and Lisa Yuskovich, Currans and Koons are artists (laughs) I don't particularly care for. I mean, the work, Mm -hmm. I don't particularly care for. Lisa Uscovich was a really good painter. Lisa Uscovich is sort of gone, not off the rails for me, but you know, there's a certain thing that appeals about her art and she knows what it is and they become kind of comic, more illustration-y, less painterly, mm-hmm. less mysterious, more expl- you know, explicit. There mm-hmm. are these kind of big 3D cartoons and oil paint.
0: It just, do you, would you say that it's more sort of merchandise now? Yeah, I I hate to put that,
1: you know, quite a severe thing on it, but it's a shtick, you know. Uh, But I liked her a lot, and I did a piece on her at Newsweek, and I went with her to her studio and everything before she was, you know, discovered. I mean, she went... So the question was about, okay, then what's new now? What's new is identity, and what's new is electronic media. Mm
0: -hmm. You know? The other point you made in the article was that contemporary art isn't exactly mainstream, is what you said, and it, I had this argument with a major collector in Dallas a couple of years ago, and he was saying it's very, very mainstream, and, you know, and he's, I think he's referencing music videos being made in Pace Gallery and, and, you know, pop, artists and movie stars collecting art and, make, and the, the the whole sort of glamorous social circuit around the art world and that being something people look at much more commonly, but to me I still don't think, I think what's mainstream is just the social competitive shopping aspect of art or decoration aspect of art. I still don't think art is mainstream.
1: Serious modern art or contemporary art, no, is, is not mainstream, but a certain class of people, big class of people, and merchandising and everything has gone on. I remember a long time ago, I mean this got to be 15 years ago, when Chelsea, in Chelsea they started to build big new apartment blocks. And I swear to God it said something like, and I forget who the artists were. They're in the window of the thing where they're selling these apartments, I don't know whether they're leasing them or renting them. Robert Longo, Cindy Sherman, uh, somebody, somebody, I'm naming artists of that level, live here. Why don't you too? And it was a sales pitch, you know, you're in the kind of establishment hip neighborhood and that blending of establishment and hip, you know. Yes, there is an overlap of, of of what used to be difficult to understand contemporary art, and it still is difficult to understand, but people don't, you know. I could see a painting of mine being bought by somebody and ending up in, you know, when they go to visit somebody at house and garden, and there it is on the wall, and it isn't shocking, you know. It isn't uh, 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 subversive in any way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah, that's... Except that you don't work at a domestic scale. You either work very small or very big. No,
1: I don't do over the couch, but uh, uh, somebody when I was in graduate school, I think, dis- I always like the term, they describe somebody as a finger realist, and finger realist meant that they move their fingers when they paint. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, of course, then there are like, you know, Franz Halls, they are wristy kind of people. Then there's de Kooning, elbow, <laughs> and then there's Jackson Pollock, shoulder throwing joint. Throwing your shoulder out? Yeah, throwing your shoulder out. Yeah, I work kind of elbow. Why,
0: why do you think that is?
1: I, I was brung up that way and I didn't rebel, you know. I am a product of the culture, yeah. And the artists that I liked, Big Diebenkorns, I liked de Kooning, I liked uh, Frankenthaler, I liked, uh, uh, you know.
0: Big paintings. I like
1: biggish paintings, not horribly big paintings,
0: but. One of the things you said about writing, back to writing quickly, yeah. that resonated with me is that you see the flaws first. You can't approach art. And I've I've often thought this was a failure of mine own, and and, and so seeing you say that made me feel better about the, myself and the fact that I can't just come with an open heart to every artwork and I immediately come as with a critical eye first. Yeah, and then I talk myself out of my negative first reaction maybe. Do you, is it for, like that for you?
1: Are you talking about something I'm going to go see just to go see it like we went to the museum today or I'm going to see something like Trisha Donnelly at Hudson Yards and I know I'm going to write a review about it? Both? Uh, the former, not so much. The latter, kind of, yeah. And one of the reasons is, is you're fighting off uh, press releases because you've got an avalanche of goo you know that are i don't know if you ever see what things i paste on facebook i have this little thing that i do every once in a while where i just an excerpt from a press release that's particularly egregious i excise the names i redact by just putting brackets in a blank out there and i do that in my illustration you've not seen them
0: i I've got off Facebook. Okay. I, I'm giving so my, a lecture about getting off Facebook right now. Okay. Well, my my
1: illustration is this wonderful thing of Sylvester the cat sleeping with a pillow over his head, and his feet are out. You know, and I'm taking. He's sleeping, but mine is. Oh my God! You know, you just I can't stand this. And so I always have these, and I do it every once in a while. So you're fighting off the the press release puffery. Mm-hmm. The second thing is if it's close to what I do, and that's the hard part about you know the paradox, if I'm a painter and especially an abstract painter and I go look at painting, it's what I do and on the one hand I can be a better reviewer of it because I know what goes into it. I cook the same stuff generically myself, but on the other hand I can be picky you know, over, overly, overly picky.
0: And you have credibility. And you get,
1: yeah, you get credibility. I remember going into a, an exhibition in L.A. one time by a young painter. He had been a student of mine. He was a very good abstract painter. He showed it Nick Wilder, you know, he, he young. Uh, he was gay, died of AIDS at 36 or 37. And I walked in the door with Billy Al Bankston, and Billy looks over and he points and he said, there are seven mistakes in that painting. And this painting was, you know, Mm -hmm. there's lightning bolts all over it with that sort of thing. Okay, you can tend to do that too, you know. Uh, uh, But I like to look at it if I hadn't, I mean, I had a wonderful old time in the MFA uh, this morning, mostly In the early modern kind of things and if i had one painting that comes out and it's just maybe because i like him i think george bellows is one of the greatest painters ever he can move it around like nobody else and it's a picture of this woman who's the daughter of the lighthouse keeper i don't know if you know Mm -hmm, mm that and she's got this real wistful look but he paints a hand down there he just like you know it's like no looking, you know, and it's like a behind-the-back pass or something. Like, he can, it's just stupefying, and it lifts my spirit to see that. And I'll tell you, the one other thing, this is not what we're doing, but I, I went up to the lady and asked her, and I was sort of, you know, getting all sentimental. It's a bunch of kids came through, and they had tie-dyed T-shirts, and said Art Club, BBE, and they were all, and I went up to her and I said, that's really nice, an art club. And she says, yeah, it's an art club. It's fifth graders at, you know, Beaufort Branch Elementary. That's with the BBC. And I says, well, you know, good on you. Mm-hmm. It was so nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, an art club with T-shirts in an elementary school, the art club. Not the soccer club, not the model airplane club. Well,
0: these schools have had to pick up the slack for Texas. I mean, for the museums have had to pick up the slack for the lack of art education in public schools in Texas. But that's a whole other conversation, which we will not get into now. Okay, good. Okay, last, last thing. I have to just think, and this may be too much to chew on.
1: I don't sleep in the nude.
0: Oh. That's always... You're a mind reader. (laughs) No, that's
1: always the... The, know, last, the last, last question. The joke question about showbiz interviews. <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no. You're, all right. You said you were talking about European thinkers who didn't write. This was, again, from that same, um, the final word about contemporary art essay. And you said that, that early 1964 artists would read European thinkers who didn't write directly about art, but instead said profound things that could be applied to making art. Do you think that it, thinking about art is different than thinking about other things? I don't What do you think?
1: Not entirely, no. And I think if if people allowed themselves, people who write about art, critics and teachers and so forth, if they recognized, and I'm probably going against you know uh, uh, stuff that would benefit me, and artists better, you know, they realized that, that that like you know certain forms of common sense and reasoning, et cetera, et cetera, applied across the board you know, and you just did that, you'd, you'd be a lot better off. The mystification of art is, you know, a lot of things. I would like people, my art, to be mystified up the gazoo by people like that. But it's, generally speaking, uh, it's not all that, the, the accomplishment and the sophistication of the thinking is good, but it's not all that, Different. I'm not big on the mysteriousness of, of, of art thinking, you know. I mean, I'll go with Betty Edwards, you know, left-hand drawing with the right side of the brain and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that. But no, I don't. Uh,
0: uh, uh, and I'm not
1: a spiritualist, so mm-hmm. it kind of stops there. But do
0: you think it's that art is a special avocation?
1: Yeah, it's an avocation. I don't like calling, you know, it's a
0: calling. But is it a special application?
1: What do you mean by special?
0: More special than something more practical. Applied math.
1: I don't know. How's that for an answer? I don't know. I haven't thunk about it, that a whole lot, you know. Um, Last thing, have you ever seen this television program that's on, is it on Netflix called Upstart Crow?
0: No, but I know that you're a big pop culture fan. I okay. haven't seen it. No,
1: it's absolutely wonderful. It is a sitcom about Shakespeare, and it's built like The Honeymooners or I Love Lucy, and it's, you know, filmed in a, What's
0: it called?
1: It's called Upstart Crow, because some critic of Shakespeare who didn't like him, you know, he was lower class, referred to him as this upstart crow. Who is this, you know? And so in the thing, he's always... Taking some simple thing, and it's anachronistic. You know, the teenage daughter, oh, you want to, you like the boy next door, and she says, well, duh. You know, it's things like that that make it funny. But his wife, he says something real fancy about going and getting provisions and so forth, and we must go forth to satisfy the stomach that comes through the mouth. And she says, why can't you just say we have to buy some meat? And he says, because it's what I do, mm-hmm. okay? That's the only, you know, I can give you, it's it's the thing about pain, it's because what it's what I do. Why isn't it more practical or commonsensical, you know? It's what I do. But 93.6% um, conditioning and some little spark of whatever it is, you mm-hmm. know, that makes you what you are.
0: This has been a production of Glass Tire. Go see some art.